we're going to be entering into uh, a very, very controversial text. I didn't know if you even knew that, but in the, in the Bible, this particular verse, there's been many, 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 many commentaries, many thoughts, lots of ink been spilt over this particular verse. And so I want to be careful and pastoral and very, very God-honoring and as truthful as we can be and as, as, um, as we're holding out faithful to the text as we can possibly be, but also be as pastoral as we can be because a lot of times faithfulness to the text and holding out what is the truth can, can be said in a way that's, that's not very loving. And so um, I want all those things today. So I'm going to pray for the Lord's help and then we're going to look at the text today. We're in Matthew 19 and I'll give everybody some kind of review before we start in case you're, this is your first week here. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. We believe in the power of your word. We believe in the power of this, this Bible that you've given to us. God breathed text to us that it has everything we need for life and godliness. It trains us in righteousness and holiness. <clears throat> and that if we study it, then we understand you and your gospel, your, the good news that Jesus died for us better, and it informs us not only what you want, but also imparts life to us, the, the ability and the motivation to do those things because we understand what Christ has done for us better. And Lord, I just pray for a special measure of help this morning as we look at a tough text. Marriage is a, a controversial tech thing in America, and we want to hold out what is true and what is faithful to your word and be as loving and kind as we can to everyone here, no matter what road they're on, whether they're a college student and hoping to get married and um, thinking about who one day they would marry or we're in the middle of a marriage and it's good or in the middle of a marriage and it's tough or maybe we're even on the backside and a marriage is over and we've been divorced and possibly even remarried. There's a full range here, Lord, and because of that, we need your spirit to come now and lead us all into truth and to do it with the conviction and the comfort that only you can provide. Please, Lord, help me speak in a way that's gentle and loving and pastoral and um, still faithful. I pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as I said, we're in Matthew chapter 19. We've been preaching through the book of Matthew now for uh, quite a long time. I don't know, even know. We're in the 50s somewhere on, on sermon count. And so the way we've been looking at it is the kind of the big idea of the book of Matthew is Messiah. In other words, Jesus is the Messiah. This particular book was written to those who are, come on, Jewish, yes. All right, I know it feels weird to yell Jewish, but it's not like pejorative here. We're not, we're not yelling at people that are Jews. We're, we're just saying Jesus wrote to people who are Jewish. And so because of that, um, this is called Messiah because Messiah is a Jewish word helping all those who are Jewish see that um, this man, Jesus, is the one that fulfills all those things, all those prophecies, all those scriptures in the Old Testament. And he is actually the, the Messiah of the world, the king of the world. And so at, that's kind of the big idea of the book of Matthew. And as we've been going through Matthew, it certainly breaks down into kind of subsections, the book of Matthew does. And so, for example, when we looked at Matthew 5, verses chapter 5 through chapter 7, that was the Sermon on the Mount. And so we see what is this main teaching of Jesus in regard to the gospel and how that affects us and how we're supposed to live. So this is no different than where we are right now. As we're finding ourselves starting in chapter 18 through chapter 20, we're looking at something called kingdom community, where Jesus is kind of outlining, basically, if you're going to be in the community, the kingdom community, if you're going to be in the family, and if you're going to be a believer then there's some things that you need to know about how to interact with each other. And so we've looked at forgiveness. We've looked at holding each other accountable. And today and last week, we've been looking at what are some of the expectations of marriage in the kingdom community. So that's where we are. If you missed last week, <clears throat> um, I'm going to do a small little review for you, and then we're going to go into it. And I just encourage you, if you missed last week, maybe this isn't your thing, but you might want to, if, especially if today brings some questions, you're going to need to maybe go on iTunes and download last week's sermon to get the, the full understanding of what, what's going on here. But just a, a small little review, which is <coughs> um, the Pharisees, who weren't big fans of Jesus, wanting to kind of 
um, trick him, came with him with a question. You can see it there in, uh, in verse 3. Is it lawful for divorce any... Uh, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? They, they wanted to be able to have divorce. More so, they also wanted to try to trick Jesus in the way, in the, that's the reason why they're asking. So instead of answering their question directly, what Jesus does instead is lay out what is, I think, the biblical foundations for marriage. Can we divorce? Well, let me just tell you what God thinks about marriage. That's basically what he does. And so he has three foundations, and I unpacked all these ad nauseum last week, but um, these are the basic three things. Uh, the first thing is that in verse 4, we see that Jesus helps us see, because he quotes Genesis 127, that man is created in the image of God, the image of God. So man and woman, in regard to image bearer status, are equal in dignity, value, and worth. Husbands, we are not more important than our wives. We certainly have different roles. It's just obvious as we look at each other, we're we have different bodies, we have different roles, there's different things that we've been wired and gifted to do. And so we're not, we're not speaking towards roles, we're just speaking in regard to dignity, value, and worth. That we are complementary of each other, that we, we go together. And so, uh, but when it comes to image of God status, we, we need to see that God, Jesus, is saying that we are um, equal in the image of God. And he created marriage to be between a man and a woman. That's the first thing. The second thing is, uh, it's right there in verse 5, is the one flesh status or the one flesh union of husband and wife. You can see it, one flesh of husband and wife. And so when we talk about being one flesh, we're not just talking about the physical coming together. This is certainly, and especially in today's society, the most prevalent idea of what one flesh means. And, and that's why all of our commercials are so sexualized because that's all that's kind of uplifted when it, we talk about hu- coming together. But not until you've been married is that supposed to happen. And so the one flesh thing that Jesus wants them to say, as they're asking about divorce, he just says, you have, been become, you have now become one flesh. Husband and wife, you are now um, tied together, united, yoked. This, this one flesh has all those, carries all those meanings. And so when he's answering this question, the first thing he says is, you're, you're image bearers, equal. And so you're supposed to treat each other that way. And now you've also become one flesh together. And so this is not just physical, but spiritual. It, I've heard one person say the commingling together of souls. And so you are now once, and God counts you together as one until you die. You are one flesh and you cannot separate it out. And Calvin even said last week, if we were, it would be like ripping our flesh apart into two different bodies. We would never do that. And so the third thing that we saw last week is not only are we image bearers, not only are we now one flesh, but that one flesh that has been united is something that God did, not us. So when we stood there with the pastor, if you're married, and he says, I now pronounce you man and wife, these aren't just mere words of a pastor. There's a mysterious thing that's happening where God is now coming down into this in some way and God is putting you together not just the words of your pastor and not just the legislature and state saying now you're husband and wife we want more taxes or different tax levels or whatever it's also God saying now you are one flesh so these are the things that Jesus answers and so we can see as they're asking about divorce Jesus has given his answer and he doesn't, he doesn't do anything else. If you notice there in verse 6, he says, Therefore, after he answers all those things, he ends it with, What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. In other words, um, a more literal translation, What God has joined together, no man separate. No as in no comma. You should not, cannot. This is what God has done. This is not your decision to separate. No man doesn't separate. And Jesus has given his answer. So that's where we're going to be coming down in today, starting at verse 7. So we've seen the foundations. Um, and as I said, and we're going to get to it in a second, uh, verse 9 is the, is the controversial verse. But before we do that, I want to read a news story to y'all. I don't know if y'all happened to see this week, but this particular week, there was a story of a couple that celebrated the, their 80th wedding anniversary. They are crazy old, right? I mean, crazy old. Um, it, let me read it to you. Fairfield, Connecticut. A Fairfield, cuppy, a Fairfield couple knows a thing or two about making a marriage work. They have been husband and wife for 80 years and are getting national recognition. John and Anne have been married for more than 80 years. At 101, he's 101, and 97 years old, respectively. They are the longest married couple, the country, and country's longest married couple. And here's, here's a quote. John says, we just fell in love, that's all. 
They tied the knot on November 25th, 1932, and they've been at each other's side ever since. So what's their secret? Here it is. This is John's secret to marriage. In his eyes, longevity of marriage. Um, Eighty years, you know, it's just contentment, said John. So the secret, according to John, who's 101, um, says it's contentment. There's a ring of truth to that, and I'll explain it in a second. And, and she says, 80 years of living, I mean normally. So her secret basically is just live normally, and then you'll have 80 years of marriage. He says, it's just contentment. She's no problem. Um, it, he goes on to say, she likes to cook. and blah, blah, blah. So Anyway, um, so while we all like to hear stories of this, I, I think that, <clears throat> and I don't know them, but I think that we would say, at least I would say, um, even at year 15 of my marriage, and someone says, how have you been married together so long? I would say, Jesus, that is the, that's the only way that we've been married for 15 years. And certainly, that, I can't imagine if the Lord would sanctify me that long at, after 80 years, that that's what I would say. So while we like to hear stories of this, and I, I like what they're saying, um, I think that the, the secret is not just in, in and of itself contentment. I think that when they say contentment, they're kind of really meaning selflessness, Selflessness, which is a good quality in marriage. I think we would all say that. Um, But I would say, what's the source of the selflessness? How are you being so content or selfless? So as we start asking that, we can say, um, longevity, while it's good in marriage, is not the ultimate end of marriage. The glory of God is the ultimate end in marriage. And if the ultimate end in marriage is the glory of God, it should be. We would think produce longevity if we all live to be 101 years old. Um, And so for us who are believers, and they don't say this and I don't know them, but for us, the source of our contentment, the source, I should say, for our marriage or the point of our marriage or the end goal of our marriage then is not just trying to have a long marriage, but instead to have a marriage that glorifies God, which the source then must be Christ and his gospel. Jesus Christ's death, burial, and resurrection on the cross for us on our behalf, which therefore tra- transforms our heart, changes our mind completely, as we've seen even in, in the end of, there in, in, of chapter 18, about how we interact and forgive one another. And from that, we grow in our, we grow in our Christ-likeness, we grow in the gospel, we become more gospel-centered, more Christ-like, we extend forgiveness to our spouse and, and, of course, to others, but we're in the context of marriage here. And I think that is what's going to be for us the, uh, the way that we have God-glorifying marriages, and when we have God-glorifying marriages, that's going to produce the longevity. So while this is a great story, certainly there's got to be more than just contentment is the secret, right? Jesus is the ultimate reason for marriage. Now, obviously, I don't know them, but we know just in, in general, unbelievers can have marriages that last a long, that last a long time. There's no question about it. Um, and that's good, and we should affirm that. We want that to happen. But we don't want to model marriages after unbelievers if it's just because they married a long time and they have some things about it. We don't want to ultimately model our marriages around contentment or selflessness, but around Christ and his gospel and our marriages be Christ-centered. And so let's, let's look at this, and I think that as we jump in, we're going to be able to see, um, we're going to be able to see what I'm saying Normally, as, as I, I preach here every week, uh, I try to, as I preach, if, if this is the teaching side and this is the preaching side, I try to lean over here towards preaching. So I give you about 70%, 75%. I, I like to teach, and so I end up probably doing maybe more than I should, but I end up trying to do more preaching than teaching, which just means exhortation and challenge to try to take what you've heard and go live differently. Today, because of just the nature of the text and the context of what we're looking at, I'm going to probably lean a little bit more this way where I'm going to do a little bit more explanation and exegesis, uh, interpreting the text for us so we understand. So there'll be probably 60, 70% teaching than preaching. So um, I don't know if that's, that'll be the case for sure, but that's what it feels like as I wrote it. I, I just wanted to let you know that this is a little bit different, uh, and, and that's okay. On, on a week-by-week basis, of course, as we're, as we're going through books of the Bible, that's going to happen. It's going to shift from week to week according to the text. And so I just think it's helpful to know as we're looking at this, which way are we leaning, Fudd? And that's, that's the way we're leaning. So let's look at verse 7. Um, and as we're looking at verse 7, we know that Jesus has laid this foundation. He's already given the answer. Like, 
Can we get a divorce? Well, he's answered. What God has joined together, God has joined together. Let not, which the let's not even in the, in the Greek. Man doesn't separate. Answer's done. He's done. He's given his answer. The Pharisees, you can almost hear, um, were anticipating Jesus' answer and already had their follow-up question ready. And I think probably, most assuredly, with the exact same motives as they had whenever they came first in verse 3. And it says they tested, which is literally tempted, the same word that, that is referred to as the tempter of Satan. So we, I think they actually have the same motives and they're just waiting for that answer. We knew he was going to say that. Follow-up question, we're trying to even tempt him or trip him up a little bit more. And then it says, they said to him, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? Well, this simply is not true. Moses did not command people to divorce people. All right. So this is pointing back to Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 4, which we kind of referred to last week. And they're taking that and they're twisting it to their own desires and asking a question, which is really not the intent of the, of the scripture at all. If you read that, um, basically, Moses in that text is acknowledging that divorce happens. And as he's acknowledging that divorce happens, he's certainly not pronouncing moral judgments on it. Instead, he's acknowledging that it happens and making laws around the fact that it happens in order to protect women. That's, that's really what Moses is doing. And so they've taken that and said, Moses said you can just give divorces, no big deal. And what they're trying to do is... If you don't know this, Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And they're trying to take, you know, the Deuteronomy Moses and pit him against the Genesis Moses and saying, see, Moses versus Moses. And this is just a false dichotomy. That's why when Jesus hears them and knows that they're going to do this, instead of answering that Deuteronomy 24 question, he goes, oh, you want to talk about Moses? Fine. Let's go all the way back over here to Genesis 1 and 2. Moses wrote that too. And he gives us the foundation for marriage right here. And so I just wanted you to help you see that that's the reason why uh, Jesus refers them immediately back to Genesis 1 and 2 to to break down this false dichotomy of trying to pit Moses against Moses. And so what this means is then is that the Pharisees are not really making any point at all here by asking this question. I don't think that there's anything that they're really doing besides twisting the scriptures to say what they wanted to say. Why would they do that? Why would they do that? Well, we see right here in the very next verse why. And he, and he said, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her, away, send her away? He said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. Why would they twi- twist the scriptures? They have hard, sinful hearts. They have a heart that does not want to submit unto the scriptures, but instead um, to twist it to their own deep desires. Their sin is that they desire divorce even when it has not been that way from the beginning. And it's not God's design. And they have sinful hearts because the Israelites knew that they were wanting and the Pharisees want divorce to be permitted as well. Why would Jesus address them as hard-hearted people? Um, This is what Spurgeon says. He says he treats them as persons diseased with hardness of heart, hoping to lead them back to an older and better state of things by possible stages. In other words, he's trying to help them return back to what is actually the original intent of God in Genesis 1 and 2 for marriage. So I think it's wise for us then just just to be smart here and, and say, okay, we're coming up on what is an extremely, extremely controversial verse in verse 9. The best thing we can do before we just dive in in verse 9 is to make sure we have understood everything thus far so we don't, make any pro- we don't have any her- hermeneutical or biblical interpretive mistakes. So let's just look at this. An important review is we can't just breeze, pre- breeze past what's already happened in those first eight verses. First, we've seen that Jesus has said um, that divorce is not permitted. And he said that by saying man and woman are created in God's image of equal dignity, value, and worth. So they should not be treated like trash and thrown out um, just because they burnt your dinner or you don't think they look pretty anymore. Um, another thing that he said is not only the image bearer status, but the second thing is that there's one flesh now. You are therefore fastened, yoked, united together until death. And if death doesn't happen, you are always still united, yoked, and fastened together. And the third thing is um, that God has literally, uh, he is the one that has done that. He is the one that has made you one flesh. Therefore, man cannot untie, unyoke, etc. This is solely the decision of God to do that. And he decides to do it one way, death. 
death. So if what God has created and put together, he breaks by death. So when your spouse dies is whenever he's saying you're free to remarry. Um, and we know that that's the case because once they die, then we're free to remarry and, and marry someone else because um, in, in heaven, there is no remarriage. I, I don't know if you knew this. Or, I'm sorry, there is no marriage. It's not like whenever you get to heaven, you're looking for your spouse and you're like, oh, we're still married up here in heaven. Um, there's a story in Mark 12 where brother one is married to this girl and he dies and then uh, she gets married to brother two because he's dead. And so brother two dies and go to brother three and she, he dies and then brother four and then the Sadducees all the way down to brother seven. And, so, and he dies. And so the, the, fair, the Sadducees who don't believe in the afterlife come up to Jesus and they say, so in heaven, um, which brother is she going to be married to? It, it, is she a bigamist? It, they don't use that word, but basically that's what they're asking. And he's like, well, in heaven, there is no, there is no marriage. It's just we're all children of God. That's not that I would just think. If someone came up and asked me that, I would say my answer would have been, um, what was wrong with like brother three and four? <laughs> Didn't they see the pattern? Like, no, no, no. <laughs> you can forget this. You can find your own guy. I like to live. But anyway, that's just a side note. Um, but we know that marriage is, is once, we, once death happens, that abrogates or breaks the marriage covenant. And that point, we're free to remarry again. And so... Um, We've had all this kind of laid out for us, image of God, one flesh, God did this. And then the Pharisees launch back, well, then how come all these divorces are happening, Jesus? And he answers, because you have sinful hearts, because you're sinners and you desire divorce. But divorce has never been permitted. And this has not been the case from the beginning. And Spurgeon even says, there was no provision in paradise for Adam to be able to put away Eve. And there's the answer. We're, We're done there. We're going to go into verse 9, but I think it's smart for us to make sure we have that full context before we dive into verse 9 and make some, some interpretive problems. Now, why is it important to review all that before we get into verse 9? Because if we just drop in on verse 9 and start making interpretive remarks on verse 9, we're very likely to make mistakes on what Jesus is saying without having what is the full context that he's given us that the fact that we should forgive, he's given us foundations for marriage, and he said the reason why you won't divorce is because you're sinners. And none of that's been the intent from the beginning. And so now when we get into verse 9, it's important for us to make sure we understand it. I'm just going to read it, and I'm going to give what is a literal translation, because I think that this translation isn't as accurate as it possibly could be. And then we're, I'm going to give you some reasons why this is my view. Um, verse 9, and it says... And when we get to the, what I think are the problematic words, I'm just going to say them in Greek because I think that's actually more helpful. Um, verse 9 says, And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for porneia, it says sexual morality, but the word is actually porneia. It's where our English word pornography comes from. Um, whoever divorces his wife except for porneia, por, porneia and marries another commits moichate, commits adultery, moichate. Now, Here's the interesting thing. Those are two different words. Moikate, there is a word for adultery. So we can already start seeing, okay, well, most of the people will translate and understand this to be, verse 9 is saying that you have to stay married except if your spouse commits adultery. And if your spouse commits adultery, then you're free to get a divorce. The only problem is that there is a word for adultery and it's readily available in this exact same verse. Moikata is right there. It would make more sense if that were the case to say, and I said, whoever divorces his wife except for moikata and marries another commits moikata. But it doesn't say that. Instead, it employs or uses this word porneia, which makes it very interesting to try to figure out what they're saying then. I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for porneia, so what does porneia mean then? Now, the ESV, our translation, translates it. It kind of takes that word porneia. And there's different translations. Like in 1 Corinthians 6, it actually translates the word porneia as prostitution. So there is a range of meaning that, kind of, that can be here. Um, and this, instead of just saying, um, 
you know, like what I think the word is in, in this particular context is actually fornication. I think that's the actual right translation is, and I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for fornication and marries another commits adultery. I think that that's the right translation, the right call here, which is a very narrow way, but um, it just translates it as sexual immorality. Big, huge kind of junk drawer term, and which is good for a Bible translation. It allows the reader to make the decision. And, and it doesn't make the decision for you. For, if you have an NIV, it says marital unfaithfulness. Um, I think that's just wrong. That's a, that is a really, really wrong thing to do because it's making that decision for you. That's an interpretation, not a translation. And that's not what I don't think that word means at all because that word is actually right there in verse 9 already as adultery. So the NIV, if it says that, you should scratch out marital unfaithfulness and just, if you feel better, write sexual immorality. Or you can just write porneia, which is the Greek word. But anyway, I digress. So let's get back to what I think here. This is the literal translation here. The literal translation, Jesus says, and I say to you, because or that, either way, because or that, I say to you that whoever divorces his wife, not, the Greek word may is not, not for porneia and marries another, does adultery, does adultery. So whoever marries, whoever, uh, I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, not for fornication. If This is the only stipulation that it's okay. If, if you don't do it, not for that, and you marry someone else, then you commit adultery. So it seems to say that the only reason that divorce would be allowed is for porneia, which I take to be fornication. I'm going to explain that in just a second. Um, what I want to do here is give you an understanding of where I'm coming from and build what would be my, my case. Now, let me just say this. Um, this particular verse, there are lots of people that go lots of different ways. And I, as a pastor and, and, and a study of the word, have to go away. And this is the way that I've picked. This is the way that Jack has picked as well, the other elder. So this is the position of us as a church, as elders. And so I want to, I want to make my case of why I think that this is what it is. Before we do that, we need to be careful here because I hear people in this particular verse, um, they, they say some things that I just don't like. Um, he, these are the things of just kind of setting up, what about this exception clause only being in Matthew? I don't know if you're aware, but as the gospel writers are making, verse 9, it's only in Matthew. It's not in Mark, it's not in Luke, and, and this pericope or set of verses is not even really in John. So why is it not in Mark and Luke? What I don't like when people say, well, it's only in Matthew... Mark and Luke don't even have it. And so it makes me think, like, wait, what are you saying? Like, Matthew's not God's word? Are you, are you saying that Matthew's not God's word? Because that doesn't make any sense. Are you trying to say that Mark and Luke are somehow more important because both of them exclude it, and Matthew just accidentally, like, woke up in the middle of the night, and it's like, oh, I'll just throw that in there right to sleep. I'm like, what did I write? Oh, I would leave it. I guess that was, I mean, I don't think that's it. Like, it's not like that shouldn't be there. Okay, it should be there. So instead of just trying to say it's not in Mark and Luke, which it's not, and I'm going to make that point in just a second, the better question is why is it only in Matthew? That's the better question. So the second thing is, and now I'm about to seemingly contradict my first point, but I think this is still a good point. This is what I think they make, what the point is they try to make when they say number one, but it almost comes off as, you know, maybe that verse isn't inspired. The whole Bible is inspired by, by God. It's interesting, as Mark and Luke wrote this particular letter, and they didn't include this, this exception clause, that as it was circulated in the first and second century, all the people that received Mark and Luke and probably didn't receive Matthew, because we know the scriptures, New Testament, wasn't canonized till later. They maybe not even had access ever. It's interesting, at least, that Mark and Luke um, didn't put it in there, but left the impression in their particular gospel that no divorce ever in any circumstance was what their belief was. Um, and what would thereby be the belief of, of Jesus. Um, and so we need to ask the question then, why is it that Matthew was the only one that wrote this exception clause? And I think it's because um, of the audience by which they're writing to. Matthew is writing to Jews. Very good. Mark and Luke are not. They're not writing to people who are Jewish. And so um, Matthew includes it because there's a misunderstanding of the Pharisees in regard to Deuteronomy 24, in which Mark and Luke's audiences were not aware of. And so Matthew includes this to help the Jewish audience who the Pharisees are trying to ask this, which are Jews. He's trying to answer this question that was happening 
previously in the Old Testament. Now, here's the third thing, and this is one of the most important reasons why um, I take this position of it being fornication and what that literally means, and I'm going to explain what I mean when I say betrothal. Um, But that's my view. Anyway, here's the third thing is, are you aware that in the stories, the Christmas stories, if you will, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, that Matthew is the only gospel that actually includes the betrothal period, which is basically the plight of Mary and Joseph includes this word that they were betrothed. Let me, let me read this to you um, in Matthew 8, 1, 18. This is what it says. Now, the birth of Jesus took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed, if you're not familiar with that word, this means engaged, but it's different than ours. Like today, when you're engaged, I probably have said this before, today that when you're engaged, if you're a woman and you don't want to be engaged anymore, you just do this and you're like, we're done. Or, you know, something like that. And the guy's like, wants to be done, give me the ring back, we're done. And that's basically it. Nothing else has to happen. That's an engagement in the 21st century. Betrothal is different. It's like an engagement, but if you're betrothed to someone in order to break the betrothal, to break what we would call as the engagement, to break the betrothal, a divorce had to, be, had to happen. Like you actually had to have a divorce. Now, what's key here is that the marriage had not been consummated in the betrothal period. There had been no sex in the betrothal period. And so this is why I think the word fornication is the right text in Pornea in Matthew 19. So let's look at this for a second and let's get an understanding. Um, he says, just picture, picture Joseph. Just put yourself in that situation. I'm engaged. She's pregnant. I know it's not me. She cheated on me. That's, that's, that's the idea here. That She fornicated. And so, um, just trying to be as biblical as we can. It says, now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. Now he changes his mind. When Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together. So we know they had not come together. And she's pregnant. She was found to be with child. Here it is. From the Holy Spirit. Joseph doesn't know this yet. He's going to find it out in a second. And it says, when her husband Joseph, being, oh, this is so key, a just man, and unwilling to put her shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. So there we can see divorce is necessary in the betrothal period, but also we can see that if fornication had happened, if there had been a cheating, if you will, in this betrothal period, that issuing the divorce on either side is actually not against God's law. It says that Joseph was just in doing so. He's not doing something that is against or contra God's law. It would be an allowance. It would be okay for him to get a divorce only in the case if this had happened. And so it actually goes as far to say that he's being a just man in doing this. So he thinks she's cheated. Now, he's about to get new information. Watch this. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Joseph, she did not commit the act of pornea, fornication. Therefore, now you are not permitted to divorce her. There is no allowance anymore. You must stay betrothed and you must get married and you will have a marriage until you die. So he does not divorce her, we know as we go through there, because he gets new information, which means she has not committed adultery on me or She has not fornicated on me. So now as we go back to Matthew 19, it's important to say if we're the ideal reader, which means Matthew has laid out his book and as he wrote it, he's wanting us to, as we see things, remember all the things that we've been reading throughout the book of Matthew. Oh yeah, Matthew is the only person that includes this betrothal language and helps us understand. So as we get here to as Matthew decides to use this word porneia, as an ideal reader of the book of Matthew, I'm, I'm understanding what in Matthew's mind he's meaning as he's laying this out. That's why Mark and Luke don't include it because they don't include this betrothal period and they're certainly not writing towards Jews. But he does. And so I think that that starts building the case for us then, this porneia, to not be translated as sexual immorality. I'm going to discuss why I think that's problematic. But instead, the only proper understanding would be um, fornication, which is... Um, applicable to this betrothal period. So therefore, just in a big nutshell, I think divorce is only allowed in the betrothal period. Outside of the betrothal period, and that's only if fornication has happened. Outside of the betrothal period, once you're married, divorce is never allowed. 
And this exception clause only makes the exception for divorce and betrothal. It does not make the exception for once you're married. Let me give you some reasons why. Number one, porneia is fornication in the betrothal period. And it's only allowed for divorce at that particular time. Um, let me read John Piper as he, as he explains kind of some of the things I just said. So my first reason why is because I think it's the betrothal. Matthew is the one gospel that tells us about Joseph's intention to divorce his betrothed Mary because he thought that she had committed fornication. And Matthew says that Joseph was just in doing this, not adulterous, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. Matthew is telling us that Jesus' warning that remarriage is adulterous does not apply to Joseph's kind of situation. It does not apply to Joseph's kind of situation. So... um, only in the case of fornication is adultery allowed. And that's only in the specific time of betrothal. Now, you need to know... Um, well, let me, let me read one other Piper quote, and then let me, let me make sure something's understood. This is the second thing he says. Since Jesus does not use the word adultery, but, which is moikata, which is readily available in Matthew's vocabulary, instead he uses the word porneia. Um, he uses the word por- uh, does not use the word adultery here. <coughs> Um, which is used in other places. It's a distinct word, but instead uses the word typically for fornication. And if you look at John 8, 41, there's another place that helps us see where the Pharisees accused Jesus of being a son of fornication. They all kind of knew the story of Joseph and Mary. And they said, you're in in, in John 8, 41 to be translated sexual immorality. You're a son of sexual immorality. And they're meaning fornication. And so we know that that word is used um, typically for fornication. He says, I know that um, I think what Jesus is doing is warning his readers that this absolute prohibition against remarriage does not apply to the situation of betrothal where fornication may have happened. Piper holds this view. I, uh, Spurgeon holds this view. Boyce holds this view. And as I said, the elders here, Jack and I as well hold this. But you need to know this. Um, I think this is really key. This is a minority position. This is not a majority position. And in evangelicalism, those who are... Um, Protestant, Bible-believing, gospel-loving Christians, those who hold to the view I'm I'm, I'm espousing or or, are arguing for are in the minority, not the majority. The majority would say that you can get a divorce um, for adultery, and some would even include some other things. Um, I don't agree with that, and I'm going to make some more cases why, but I think you need to know. I think it's helpful to know that this is the minority. I think there's a reason that this is a minority. When 50% of people in the church and out of the church are getting divorces, I think that it's easy to understand why this would be the minority position because we all, just like Jesus tells the Pharisees, are hardness of heart and want to rationalize and make reasons why it would be okay. That's just, that's just what I think. I, I think it's helpful to know that it's minority though. So let me, let me explain a little bit more another reason why I think it's, this is the right view. Um, Another thing is I think there's confusion here in the terms. Just as, as a general rule, when we're looking at verse 9, I think that as we look at it, we can say it's not entirely clear. It's just not entirely clear. We can look at it and say there are people that have different views here. Since there's a confusion of the terms where he doesn't say adultery, moikata, but instead porneia, that means that um, the, the literal translation as we look at it brings some confusion into the verse. I just think it's obvious that it brings some confusion into the verse. And when that happens, this will be my fourth point, we at least got to take a step back and say, we can't build a theology here. But we can all readily agree that there's, there is, among scholars, I said there's lots of ink been spilt over this question. Next one, verse, or number three for me, is uh, porneia. This is why I think it's a problem if it's translated sexual immorality. I think this is a problem if it's translated sexual immorality. If we don't say fornication and we bring it up to this junk drawer term of sexual immorality, which means lots of things, um, pornography, lust, um, homosexuality, it, it just it's this big junk drawer term of all deviations of sexuality that are outside of the will of God, then we've got a real problem because it says, I say to you, whoever commits divorce except for big drunk drawer term of sexual morality and marries another commits adultery, it seems if that's the case that this verse is opening up the realms of possibilities just as vast and as wide as possible to get divorces for any reason. Like in Matthew 5, it says, if, if you look at another woman with lustful heart, you've already committed adultery in your heart. Therefore, it seems though the wife would have grounds for adultery 
uh, and grounds for divorce if you've lusted after a woman or women if you've lusted after a man. That might look different, but certainly that doesn't gel with what has been the teachings thus far of Jesus as he laid foundations from Genesis 1 and 2 that any reason of sexual morality would be okay for divorce. That doesn't seem to make sense at all. Um, lastly, um, here's, here's my last argument of why I think that we need to stop and re-examine what it could be. Building a theology, building a belief system on one verse um, can be very problematic. In, in, in biblical interpretation, it says that if a text itself, that one verse, is hard to understand, the best thing to do in trying to understand what is the right biblical doctrine is not to build your theology on that one verse. Instead, to broaden out to the wider range of meaning in all of the scriptures and build your theology on what seems to be the understanding of all the writers. That's just regular Bible interpretation 101. And so that's the same thing I'm employing here. Since we've already said in verse 2, there's already confusion. There's just confusion in verse 9. We can at least admit that. Even if you disagree with me, and you have a a rock-solid view, and you've done the research, and you really believe this, and I've done mine, we can at least say, we disagree, and that's, that's something. And so, I think the best thing we can do is look at this and say, since there's confusion in this one verse, the best thing we can do is take a step out and just look at the whole of Scripture, and just get a big picture idea of what God's trying to teach us in regard to this. And this is what I think that we'll see when we do that. We will see that husband and wife is not just um, entities of their own as marriage kind of floating around. Instead, this is actually a picture of something greater, Christ and the church. So if a husband and wife needs to know whether they can do this, the best thing they can do is look at the greater picture of Christ and the church and let that be the place that we take our cues on what would be the appropriate way for us to to respond here. D.A. Carson says this. He says, um, divorce is not part of the creator's perfect design. Therefore, Any view of divorce and remarriage that sees the problem only in terms of what may and may not be done has already overlooked a basic fact. So we don't just look at it from our human perspective as man and woman and say, what can I do? Can I or can I not? Instead, we look upward and we say, we're supposed to get our our understanding from something greater. He says, divorce is never to be thought of as God ordained. Morally neutral or morally neutral option but as evidence of sin and hardness of heart. So as we understand that then, let's ask this question. Just in the New Testament, if it's a picture of Christ in the church, in the New Testament, behold, I'm with you always, even even unto the end of the age. That's the last thing he says to us in Matthew 28. When? When will Christ leave his church? When will he leave his church? I think that we can say, when Christ leaves his church is when we can leave our spouse. How often does the church sin against Jesus? How often do we sin against Jesus? Again, this is a controversial text. The better thing to do is look at the big picture. When will Christ leave his church? Never. That's where we take our cues. He will never. Or if you look in the Old Testament, when will God forsake Israel? He won't. There'll never be a time. That's the whole point. If you know the book of Hosea, Hosea is told to marry this lady named Gomer. Terrible name. Um, Her name's Gomer. And so uh, he's, I, it's the first time I've not called her Homer. And so he says, because uh, of the Hosea. Anyway, so anyway, Hosea, go marry Gomer. And what's going to happen when you marry Gomer is she is going to go and she is going to take many other lovers. Her heart will not be for you. It will be for other people. She will be like a prostitute to other people. But here's what I'm going to do for you, Hosea. I'm going to put in you this love for her that you cannot shake It's going to be so deep and so abiding that it doesn't matter. You're going to always forgive her. As a matter of fact, it says that he went out and he bought her away from this prostitution's inn and purchased her back. And then in the book of Hosea, the the, the point that God says is that picture right there is of me and Israel. I am Hosea, God says, and you are Gomer. And as much as you go out, I'm going to purchase you back with my son Jesus, with his blood, and pull you back in. If that's not a demonstration of what will God do, what are the links that God would do to make sure that this marriage of Christ and the church is always going to be tied and yoked. So since this is a controversial text, the best thing for us to do is look at the broader sense of scriptures and say, what is it that he's teaching us? So I think that what we're seeing here then is why 
uh, I hold to, this particular view that I hold to, and that um, I think Christ is saying that there is no particular time ever that divorce would be okay. That the exception clause is not extending to us uh, permission to divorce in, any, in, in the case of adultery, but instead is referring to the period of betrothal. Now, let me give a couple more arguments or reasons why I think that's the case. Just, just a general reading. This is why it's dangerous to jump into verse 9. We need to look at the context and even look at what happens in 10-11. Just a general reading of verse 10 and 11. That particular view I'm saying makes verse 10 and 11 make sense. It, it doesn't make sense to me, the reactions and Jesus' response, if that's not the case. Look at this in verse 10. Then the disciples said to him, if such is the case of, of a man and his wife, it's better not to marry. The reaction they have makes the most sense to me if Jesus is saying something that is very difficult. It doesn't make sense to me that if it's something easy that they would say this. They're in essence, these, these guys are saying, um, it's better not to marry then if it's got to be for life. That's what they're saying. And that's true and, and false. Let me explain why I think it's true and false. Um, it's true in that every person entering into marriage should make sure they understand God's design and the weight of marriage before you enter into it. I don't think that I entered into it with this knowledge. I think that I had some understanding, but I would love to like get the flux capacitor, get in my DeLorean and fly back 15 years and have a conversation with 23-year-old FUD from 38-year-old FUD. I mean, I would love it um, to be able to do that. That's a back to the future reference, 80s reference. Um, So anyway, like flux capacitor. Um, Anyway, so I think that uh, we should all kind of have that, oh, this is a big deal. And I think that's what the disciples are trying to say. It just hit them. Marriage is a much bigger deal than I thought. So it's true. What they're saying is true. We should all have this. And also, I think that this, um, for us, highlights the high regard that, that Jesus has for singleness. If you, if you see that and you're like, I, I can't do that right now, then... He's also holding a high regard for singleness. 1 Corinthians 7, where Paul argues for those that are single, it's better to say celibate. I mean, I, think, I just think that's more descriptive. Single still insinuates, I think, maybe promiscuity. I just like to say celibacy. So if we've been given this gift of celibacy, this gift of singleness, it also highlights that great position. Because they are still in an awareness of, I'd need to have the right perspective of awe of marriage. And until I have that, I should, I should remain celibate. I should remain single until then. Now, I want to say this, um, because as my wife, she, she's not here. She's got a, a tweaked back, if you will. And so she's listening to my sermon, and she said, you know, Fudd, um, you're always picking on those single people, you know? You, maybe you're a little too harsh to the single people. And, okay, you're right. That's generally what she's right, and I need to listen. Um, and so let me just say, uh, single person, I, I'm sorry for last week for, you know, Saying, well, I'm glad it's not me. But, um, but anyway, let me just say this. Uh, let, me, let me encourage you who are single, who, are, who might be celibate, by saying this. Um, there is a range of where you are to where I really wish I was married to I actually am glad I'm not. You know, you're like the Apostle Paul. Um, let me say this. The reason why God has you single right now, the reason why God has you single right now is not so that you'll feel bad because you're not married. He's just trying to teach you a lesson. That's not the case. And it's also not so that you can just play and socialize more than us who don't get to do that. <laughs> That's not why you're single, okay? The, the biblical answer from 1 Corinthians 7, the reason why you're single is so that now you have more time for ministry. That's, that's what he says. That's the basic point that he's trying to make in first corinthians 7 you are single and celibate right now because god has given you more time in order to go do ministry so are you squandering that or is it all about you is it all about you are you squandering that because that's why you're single it's not because he's mad at you and it's not because you just get more playtime than than us who are wiping behinds and feeding kids at midnight why are you awake anyway so um it's because he wants you to use this time to further yourself in ministry. So 
the first reaction that they have is true. But then there's also this reaction I think is a little bit false. And then they say, basically they're saying, um, it's better not to marry then if it's got to be for life. That's, that's totally also not true. And here's why. And this is why they're, I just think this, they're the disciples and they don't, haven't seen the full gamut of the, the death, burial, and resurrection. They're not filled with the Spirit. And this is why I think this isn't true. Here's, here's, this is one of the most encouraging things you might hear if you're married. Um, the power of the Holy Spirit in you right now, if you're a believer in Christ, and the deep belief you have in the good news of the gospel, which makes you righteous and also promises that each day you're going to become more and more holy each day. This is a promise of the gospel, that you are going to, in small increments though it may be, grow in your Christ-likeness. That's reason to, even if it's got to be for life, because we have the power of the Spirit and a deep belief in the gospel which declares us righteous. We can do this for life. We can do this for life because Jesus is going to empower us to do this for life. And so I think that day by day, day, month by month, year by year, we're going to, because of the Holy Spirit and the gospel, fall more in love with our spouse each passing day, month, and year. That's been the case for me, for those that are in Christ. And we're going to more and more never desire a divorce. So they're also wrong when they say that it's better not to because we have this amazing gift of the Spirit and this amazing truth called the gospel. And so I don't think that what they're saying is absolutely true, though it has, has some true rings to it. Now, just to keep going, I think that another reason why my position makes sense is, is the response of Jesus. Look what he says here. And he says, Jesus said, and he said to them, not everyone can receive this saying, but only to those whom it has been given. The way that makes the most sense is Jesus is saying, people are going to rebel against this hard teaching. But it doesn't change the truthfulness of it. And so I think with all those reasons, this is why um, and this is what this particular verse is saying. And. Let me just kind of stop here and say this, because this is where I feel like we could get really practical and we could just start answering a whole host of questions. And the theologian Q&A guy in me just wants to just start saying, probably this is your question, probably this is your question, probably this is, and just start, and we all don't want that. So um, let me just say this then. More than likely, I'm sure you have tons of follow-up practical questions, and that's okay. I think the general rule in answering questions is to start with the, your theology and move over to answering the actual practical questions, not start with practical questions and try to import yourself back over and get a theology from the question. That's dangerous. You need to start with what you believe before you hear the stories. But I want to let you know that um, I'm not going to go through a list. I'm not sure that would be the most profitable thing here. Uh, but I do want to talk to you. I do want to have a conversation with you if you really, really want to. Not even if, I, I desperately care for you. I love you very much. And I know hearing teachings like this can make you say, what about, what about, what about? And I don't want you to feel like those aren't important. They're very important. Call me, text me, face-to-face, whatever. Jack as well, the other elder, we want to be able to have these conversations with you and help you um, walk through the conversation that you need to have, whatever that may be. Um, most foundationally, let me just kind of conclude with this. Most foundationally, marriage is the doing of God. He is who does it. And it's also, ultimately, marriage is the display of God. And the reason why is this. Let me read this text to you in Matthew, I'm sorry, Ephesians 5. Paul quotes that verse in Genesis 2.24, starting in verse 31. And he says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And we know that God has done this. And it says, This mystery of man being united in one flesh with his wife is profound. And I am saying, this is the most important line of this part. It refers to Christ and the church. So our marriage is a display of the glory of God because it's not an end in of itself. It's not us. Marriage is not primarily for us or about us. It's about Jesus Christ and his church and us putting on display the good news of the gospel and his glory. Now, What if, Fudd, that's not what's happened to me? This is a, this is a really important question. That's, that's not what's happened to me. I might believe you, but that's not what's happened to me. 
What does that leave me? We're family here. We're not just a collection of people that say, this is our deal, and that's not your deal. Sorry. We're family. And families extend grace to one another. That's what they do. Let let me read Boyce. Boyce's commentary. This is not a theologian commentarian. He's interpreting this as a pastor. This is... This is so beautiful. This is exactly how I feel. He says, better at words. Divorce and remarriage, as bad as they are, divorce and remarriage, as bad as they are, are not unforgivable. They're just not. We're part of a family. And you need to know that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, no matter what your sin is. I take the position of 1 Timothy 1 and Ephesians 3, 5. I'm the chief of all sinners, the least of all these. So who am I to try to cast condemnation on anyone for a particular sin? I try to hold out what's true and we trust the Holy Spirit and we try to live by these kingdom community things that he says and we trust the gospel. Divorce and remarriage, as bad as they are, are not unforgivable. Also, God is always willing to begin again with us wherever we are and whatever we've done. That's not a reason to go make the decision of divorce now since I get to begin again. That's if you have found yourself in that position now and you're part of this family, you need to know that we are a family of grace. Nothing that you've done is out of the realm of forgiveness. And God is always willing to begin again with us wherever or whatever we've done. That goes for anything that you're in right now. Let's just use that word porneia. That means if you are entrenched in a wretched life of pornography or homosexuality or you do not treat your spouse, you speak to them in such horrible ways when people aren't around or nothing to do with marriage, anything you find yourself into. This particular truth, this gospel reminds us of the vastness of the gospel that no one's out of the realm of unforgiveness. And don't miss this. Not only does it remind us of the vastness of the gospel, but the amazing restorative power, restorative power that has, that the the gospel has in the life of a believer. Restorative power. That's what the gospel has for us. There's no condemnation for those who are in the family of remedy. Because Romans 8.1 says that God does not condemn you if you're in Christ. These are what we think to be true in the scriptures. But he, uh, he extends amazing forgiveness to us if we've not lived up to what he has told us. So here's your, here's your application. Here's your homework for the week. All right, singles, college students, most of you college students probably are single. If you're not, you're just broke. But anyway, um, <laughs> been there and done that. Um, if uh, you are single, this is your homework for the week. Take the notes of the last two weeks. If you weren't here last week, you know, maybe just what you heard today, unless you, you know, an overachiever and you want to get last week off iTunes. Um, and just take some time this particular week and study them. Block out a good hour, hour and a half, two hours, and just study through this text, maybe study through those foundations, and resolve in your heart and mind before you meet whoever it is you're going to marry, or if you're engaged right now and everything's just so blissful. Um, You get married and that'll change. Um, For the glory of God and your sanctification, thank goodness. Um, But let's just resolve in our minds this week, single and college folks, my view in Christ is that no matter what the situation is, no matter what my spouse does against me, I will not divorce because that is what resembles Christ in his church that he'll never leave me. That's your singles. College is a little more tricky. I mean, I'm sorry, married is a little more tricky Um, because not everybody is in that ideal and that's okay. Um, You are where you are and you're gonna make this marriage the most Christ-honoring marriage that you can. So here's your homework for the week. Married couples, this is going to be awesome. Take your spouse out on a date this week. And I mean like an awesome one. You know, I'm not, not McDonald's and get them a Happy Meal and they get a toy. 
Take them out to a really good place. I mean, a really, really, really good place. If you can't afford that, that's okay. Like, put on a pot, of, put the kids to bed really early one week at like 6 p.m. and put on a pot of coffee and have just the two of you kind of a night, all right? Um, take your spouse on a date this week and talk through the past couple weeks of what we've been looking through in these particular verses. Talk through your notes, talk through the foundations. And as you're doing that, don't get a fight. I'm like, you're on a good date here, all right? Don't, you're on a good date. Here's what I want you to do. Ask yourself this. Is our marriage primarily about God and his glory or us and our happiness? Primarily. It's certainly okay for you to be happy in marriage. What is it primarily about? And if it's about Christ and his glory, then let's resolve right now, no matter what happens. Even if you've already had this talk, let's resolve again right now. Whatever happens, we're never divorcing, ever. We want in our most troublesome times that this marriage will be the the display of Christ in the church, no matter what comes. And I just don't think, I just don't think that when you promise that to each other, that the other person's going to think, oh, I can do whatever I want now against them. That just doesn't make any sense. You're so secure now that you're going to press into him or her far more deeper and love her far more um, as the one flesh would be. So I'm going to pray, and then we're going to have a song that will point our hearts towards the table as we take the Lord's Supper. And then I'll come back up and, and lead us in the Lord's Supper. Let me pray. And this will be a time for us to um, center in on the table and, and the gospel and what Christ has done. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for your word. I thank you for the cross and that those who are in Christ are part of the bride or the church. And that Jesus... <laughs> this great promise that you will never leave us or forsake us. That is such an amazing, amazing promise. Be with us now as we reflect and think on the gospel and your table. Praise in Jesus' name, amen.